Welcome to Cape Up. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Donald Trump is now our president. Now what? There is no one better to talk to for the first episode of the Trump administration than Arthur Brooks, president of the conservative American Enterprise Institute. As the author of The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America, Brooks is the perfect person to help make sense of the once unthinkable President Trump. And you can hear that discussion right now. Arthur Brooks, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jonathan. And congratulations on this great podcast. Oh, thank you. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's listening to it. What a fast start. Oh, thanks very much, Arthur. We met uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Your book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America, I believe it had just come out, maybe I think that month, yeah. or um, maybe yeah, even yeah. that week. I think it was July of 2015, Yeah, right? July yeah. of 2015. And... I want you, if I'm sure you've talked about your book so much that you could probably do this riff a year and a half later, but just give a sense um, of what you told that well-heeled, mostly liberal crowd in Aspen uh, about your book. Well, I mean, it's there, there's a great book that most conservatives have read called The Conservative Mind that talks about the intellectual traditions of conservatism, and, and I read it at one point, and it was interesting to me, but it didn't move me. And the reason is because the only reason I, I have conservative ideas to begin with is because poverty, people at the periphery of society, are what I care about the most. They're, they're what, I, what got me into the policy analysis game. Um, I came rather late to it, became an economist relatively later in life. And what I cared about the most was people who were living in poverty, people who had been left behind. And, and I became, I guess, what would be called a traditional conservative today because I found that the traditional conservative ideas were best for helping people at the margins of society. And and that's why I wrote the book, which was basically this. The only compelling reason, in my view, to be a free enterprise advocate, to work for American strength, is because you want to help those who have been left behind. That's was the motivation of my life, and that's the reason I wrote The Conservative Heart. Now, um, I can't remember if it's in the book, because I did read it. Mm-hmm. It's, been, it's been a little while. I remember you told me. Um, <laughs> no, and you know, I left my copy of the book at home. When I read books, they're like living things. Yeah. I underline, I take notes, but I don't have it in front of I me. I was so pleased when you told me that, because I've admired you, and I didn't know you before, but I'd read you for a long time, and it made me so happy that, that you appreciated that what I was trying to do, not, not agreeing with every idea, but you right. appreciated the motivation behind the book. Well, well, right. When I read it then, I thought, wow. And I even said in Aspen, I said, wow, Arthur, if the Republican Party and Republican leaders in the country were to actually echo what you're saying and the motivation behind it, like a lot of people could get behind that. And it's sort of jarring to remember that given where we are as a country today. In your book, there are four institutions of meaning. Right. Family, faith, community, and meaningful work. 
Walk through each of those. Well, this is based on a, a big social science literature. So my main area of research when I was still an academic, I taught at Syracuse for a long time before I came to AEI. My main area of research was happiness, was the economics of happiness. And I'm very interested in that because that's what people care about the most. When I became a full professor and I had my tenure and I, I wanted to have my work <laughs> be meaningful and, and I looked around, I asked a lot of people, what do you care about the most? And people consistently said happiness. And so I turned my work to that particular focus. When I did that, I in, in apprehending a big body of social science literature and behavioral literature, what you find is that there, there clearly are four elements that, that put together a, a happiness portfolio, if you will, and they are faith. And by, by that, I don't mean traditional Christian faith necessarily or any particular traditional faith. I mean spirituality, a sense of the, of the, uh, of the greater other, that, that this is not here and now the only thing that exists. Something beyond yourself. Exactly right. I mean, you and I share a pretty traditional faith, I know, but not everybody listening to us does. It, the idea of a transcendent is what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. The second is family. And again, how you organize your family is a different matter. But the idea of having family relationships that are particularly sacrosanct, um, that when spouses, the love that they have and the intimacy that they have with each other in particular, and, and that with children is, is very different than the relationships that we have with others. And engendering those relationships, growing those relationships is key to a happy life. The third is, is community. And by community, I mean two things. I mean friendships, and I also mean charity. The idea of working outside yourself for a greater good, but also just fostering the friendships, the kinships that people have with each other that go beyond family. What, one of the key things that I found in my research that, that makes people unhappy, particularly for men, is that men over the course of their lives get worse and worse and worse at friendships. So guys that are you're in my age have a tendency to become kind of bad friends. I mean, we have a lot of <laughs> colleagues and we have a lot of uh, people that we know, but but we're not very good at, at the intimacy that should come with friendships. And that's the reason that research consistently finds that the, the loneliest people in society are 60-year-old men. Hmm. Yeah, this is, and here's the key statistic. All, all men. Yeah. Well, I mean, not every single one. Some are, some are better than others. But the, if well, you I was ask, thinking demographic, uh, yeah. demographically. Oh yeah, demographically. Right. Asian American, uh, African American. Poor, yeah. The whole deal. And the, it, it's when you ask men, sixty-year-old men, who's your best friend? Sixty percent of sixty-year-old men will say, "My wife." Those are married. Thirty percent of their wives say, "My husband." And it's a sad, <laughs> sad state or or tale of sort of. Uh, of unreciprocated love in a way or unreciprocated friendship. And so the key thing is making sure that you foster your friendships, treat them like something like a job because you'll lose the ability to have friendships. And the last is meaningful work, is sanctified work, is the idea that what I'm doing is creating value with my life and value in the lives of other people. And it doesn't vary by public and private sector. It doesn't vary by college education or no education. People who have dead-end jobs are almost almost as so-called dead-end jobs by elites are almost as likely to say they get meaning from their work as people who have jobs like you and me. It's an extraordinary thing. So meaningful work, earned success is really the fourth element. You tell a story about a friend mm -hmm. of yours in India. Mm -hmm. um, you were, I guess, traveling with him and he said he was rich. And you were telling this story, I think you were either visiting the Dalai Lama or when the Dalai Lama was, was here in Washington. Mm -hmm. And you looked at him and you're like, 
by American standards, there's no way he's yeah. there's no way he's rich. Explain right. why did he think? Why did he say and believe in his heart he was rich? This is a guy named Krishna Pujari, who's a, a friend of mine who grew up very poor in a village outside of Bangalore, and he he moved to Mumbai, which was you know the best bustling metropolis where he could get work when he was 13. He's one of eight kids, uh, just dirt poor, particularly by American standards, and he moved to Mumbai to serve tea and to sort of better himself. And he was going to build his life. He's an ambitious guy. He moved actually to a slum called Dharavi, which is one of the most famous slums in the world. And, and to give you an idea what this place looks like, it's about two thirds the size of Central Park and it has a million people living in it. So for the average American family home, that's wow. like 400 people living in your house. There are also 10,000 small enterprises running in this slum. So my friend Krishna, he sets up his business actually giving tours of micro enterprises to Westerners. And that's how I met him. I mean, who's gonna take a, sl- a slum tour? It's like poverty tourism or something but no that's not what it is it's opportunity tourism and he takes you around and he shows you and he's making 500 bucks a month which doesn't sound like a lot to us but for him he's he's rich he's showing people who have initiative he shows westerners that there's no begging that systems can work that free enterprise can lift people out of poverty it, it gives you a, a strong sense of the solidarity and brotherhood that our that our, our systems should bring to us and and for being able to do that and the joy he brings to people He's rich. And, and, and each of us should be able to take that sort of satisfaction in our work, to become detached from the, the workaday concerns of, of simply making more and more, to get off the hamster wheel and to remember that faith and family and community and meaningful work, if we are able to feed ourselves and our families, we're rich, man. You say that this is the purpose of the capitalist free enterprise system. Create something, which he did. Earn our way, which he did. And to serve other people, yeah. which he which he's doing, all three of these things. It's so true. You know, it's uh, the the idea of of making something tangible that you can see, earning it, earning your own way, such that people aren't just helping you and, and lifting you up all the time. Although each of us needs help, the idea of being somebody who's an autonomous individual, and and most importantly of all, is the idea that we are connected to others and we can serve others. And part of our own earned success is creating value in the lives of other people. That really moved me and it spoke to some of the experiences that I've had in my life that are the most meaningful. I travel all the time. What a blessing to have the job that I do. And one of the things that I'll find is when I meet the happiest people, they always wind up talking about earning it and making it and serving other people. Those are the characteristics that people who feel the best about their lives have in common. Um, One word that we haven't talked about, which figures prominently in your thinking and in your writing is dignity. Yeah. It is vitally important. Right. In your view. That's right. So dignity is something that Christians like me believe is inherent, that people are made in God's image. This comes from Judeo-Christian thinking. Uh, Muslims believe this. Christians believe this. Jews believe this. Other religions, Eastern religions, typically believe that it has to be earned. But one thing that we know is that not everybody senses their dignity. Dignity is is to be worthy of respect. That's what dignity really means. And, and people can be stripped of their sense of their dignity in, in a lot of ways. But the number one way that people are stripped of their sense of dignity is when they feel superfluous to society, when they feel that they are not needed. Uh, the most important thing that we can do in public policy, that we can do in our cultural discourse, that Jonathan, you and I can do in our role uh, publicly working in intellectual life, is to help people understand how they are necessary to our society. We've gone 
now generations where we've gotten better and better and better at helping people. And, and this gets back to the earlier proposition that I have that to, to be a conservative, you should dedicate yourself to helping people who have less power than you. That should be the, the purpose of the conservative movement because conservatives are supposed to be dedicated to making people needed, to making people autonomous, to put people in a position where they, they make it, they earn it, and they can serve others, which is the essence of being a necessary person. If you're not necessary, if you're helped and you're carried and you're told that you're probably not good enough to make it on your own, but we'll just carry you the whole way, of course you're going to lose your sense of dignity because you're going to lose your sense of neededness. And that's something that I think liberals and conservatives should come together around to not tolerate. This word, dignity, and everything you just said helps to explain why Donald Trump was as successful as he was at becoming president of the United States. Progressives and liberals love to talk about the income gap all the time, but they never talk about the dignity gap. Right. It didn't. None of this occurred to me when I was uh, starting to look at Donald Trump for the first time. Here, here's really how the, how I started to think about this. Um, it was during the Obama presidency, and, and I was having lunch one day with a friend of mine who is the the president of the Center for American Progress, Neera Tandon. And she's 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 really talented. She's an r- incredibly clear thinker, and we've been friends for quite a while. Which you know it might be weird for your listeners because you know Center for American Progress is super lefty, and AEI is right, and super ne- super not lefty. And and Neera was um, the head of uh, then candidate Clinton's transition yeah transition. So we all secretly Mm -hmm. hang out together, it turns out, you know, (laughs) and, and, um, I was talking to Nira and you know, this was one day when, you know, so it was really bad economic news had just come out. And I said, you know, come on. I, I cannot believe that people, so many people at the margin of society continue to like Obama so very much. Explain to me when I look at the, the unemployment numbers in the African-American community, how he has this overwhelming support. Just, I mean, enlighten me. And Nira says, it's about dignity. You know, Obama is a person who, who gave dignity to people who didn't feel dignity, did not have a sense of their dignity. And every, every word, and it's not just because he's African-American, it's because of what he says, the experience that he brings, the way that he, he talks about the experience that he has of, of being brought up in a, in a single parent household and the way that he was able to live his ambition and, and, and get ahead in this great country. It brings dignity to people's lives. I thought about that. I thought, huh. How much are we marginalizing the sense of dignity of people all over this country? It was meaningful to me to understand President Obama. A year after that, I had a a conversation with President Obama about poverty at Georgetown University, and it it really animated the way that I had that conversation with him. It gave me a, a real sense of respect for what he was doing in a way that I didn't understand it before, but it also helped me to understand the emergence of Donald J. Trump one year after that in 2016. You know, Donald Trump... Uh, was talking to people in the parts of America that have been truly forgotten and left behind now for generations in a way that was inherent. It helped people understand that he understood that they should have a sense of their dignity too. You know, for those of us who live in the relatively rarefied air of Washington, D.C., we see urban populations of people who've been left behind. We look at people who are sort of the traditional victims of poverty as we've understood it, and we don't see a lot of the people that Donald Trump was talking to, yet, you know, the research is overwhelming. We, we see the opiate addiction problem is, is largely a rural problem. We see that the, the only group in American society today that has rising mortality, which is to say that the, they're living le- lower and lower numbers of years, are, are white men between 45 and 54 without a college education. And the reason for that is, number one, cirrhosis of the liver, number two, suicide, and number three, it's opiate overdose. 
These are things that we just don't see, but Donald Trump spoke to this all around the country. Like it or not, he was also speaking the language of dignity. Now, was it destructive in certain ways? Was it counterproductive in a lot of ways? Yeah, and and you wrote about it eloquently, Jonathan, but let's learn the good thing from that as we come together in the coming years around a a system that celebrates brotherhood and, and solidarity and the common human dignity. Let's learn from Obama and Trump, no matter what we think about them politically. Okay, so I, <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am almost speechless, only in that I completely I agree with you 100% in terms of what President Obama means to people and just how his own lived experience speaks to people's dignity, that like, they gravitate towards right. him and his personal story. But given the campaign run by Donald Trump, Given the transition where tweets about people who should not take up his attention or imagination because he has a more important enterprise to run now than his Twitter feed, a Twitter feed that's filled with insults and anything that, if if anything, is the opposite of dignity. How does that part of Donald Trump match Everything that you've just said, which I think any reasonable person listening right now would be sitting and thinking, well, this Arthur Brooks makes sense up until up until he said that Donald Trump that, taught people about their own dignity or spoke to people about their dignity. I didn't say that he spoke in a dignified way. I said that he believed in the dignity of the people who were had been left behind. A lot of these people who had been left behind, listen to his words when he talks about, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to, I'm going to work to bring back your jobs. You know, he's, he's not saying I'm going to get you some more welfare. He says, you deserve to work because you want to work. I believe that you have dignity inherent. I don't, I don't believe African-Americans in America were, were inspired by Obama just because of his inspiring life story. It was very inspiring. Or not just because he was a personally very dignified person, but he believes in the dignity of people at the periphery of society. And people can tell when you believe in their dignity. Now, again, could we have had a better exemplar of that who was more dignified and didn't use Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But that's why I'm asking your listeners. And that's why I'm asking the people that I hang out with, too. Like him or hate him, learn from him. Learn from him that there should be nobody who's left behind and that everybody should be treated with a, a sense of their own dignity. But is it respecting someone's dignity when you say, I'm going to build a wall and I'm going to get Mexico to pay for it and gets them to chant these, these phrases and then pulls back on, well, actually, we're going to pay, we meaning the American taxpayer payer, is going to pay for the wall and maybe we'll get Mexico to pay us back or the chance of lock her up at his rallies and, you know, I'm going to get my attorney general to investigate you. And then, oh, by the way, no, actually, that's not going to happen. Does that respect those people's dignity when you, as the leader of a think tank and a very smart person who pays attention to the economy, when you know that there's no way he is going to be able to keep that promise. He, he made a lot of promises that he can't keep. And that's typical. Um, it's interesting. I, mean, I can't remember who it was. It was one of our colleagues someplace who said that, you know, if you're, you make a big mistake when you're in the policy analytic field and you take him literally, but not yes. seriously. Right. And his, his followers at those rallies were taking him seriously, seriously but, but not, not literally. literally. Right. And, and in point Which of fact, is a brilliant, it's, it's a brilliant a, observation. It's a really good observation. And, you know, there were a lot of people who took 
Hillary Clinton seriously, but not literally, and who've taken all national politicians seriously, but not literally, because on the campaign trail, people are being expressive of a certain set of ideas. Now, when he was talking not about who you are and how you should be dignified, but how about the, the lack of dignity of other people, I disagree completely with this. I think that the idea of polarization, the idea of, of vilification of the other, that's, a, that's something I don't approve of in any way, shape, or form. I also, by the way, believe that somebody could have had the message of dignity to those people in rural America and exurban America without actually um, concentrating so hard on the other. I, that I don't, would have been I, nice. I think that, well, I think that these are separable things is my point, and that's why I'm suggesting that we should all learn from it. Is President Trump showing the seriousness that he should or at least leading up to this moment that he should of a president of the United States. <laughs> it's uh, definitely a different model than anything we've seen before. It's really dismaying to a lot of people. I, I get it. Look, all you can say is that this is this is breaking the mold. Do I wish he weren't sending out tweets um, uh, criticizing his enemies on the on the eve of the inauguration? Yeah, yeah. I wish he weren't doing that. But but he got elected doing that, and he's he thinks, um, and and he's doing what he thinks wins. And where this goes, I, I Jonathan, I don't know. Yeah, because I mean, Arthur, you are a smart man. You are you keep a, saying this, which is basically means you're not thinking so much right now. No, 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 no. It's true. It's true. And so I'm mystified by Republicans and conservatives, who I don't know if it's bending over over backwards to not recognize the danger that he poses not only to the Republican Party but also to the Republic or am I overstating it because I'm not just getting this from my own viewpoint and you know progressives and liberals who I talk to it's from Republicans as well who are sort of wildly dismayed by what's to come. A lot of people are really worried. Of course people are worried because this is completely uncharted territory. So when I talk about it looking for the best possible angle and looking the best possible situation to try to make progress, it's not because I'm not concerned. Um, again, I would have been really concerned if Hillary Clinton were elected because I disagree with so many of her policies, to but be sure. If she had been elected, you would not be thinking in the way that a lot of Democrats and Republicans are thinking that that person's a threat to the Republic. Um, the, the, the thing that bothers conservatives an awful lot about uh, standard conventional liberal ortho liberal orthodoxy is that it's a threat to the Republic over the long term, that, that basically it's a country in decline. And so a lot of a lot of your listeners, uh, your adoring listeners, I should I should add, are, are going to be mostly progressives, some conservatives, but mostly progressives. And it's hard to understand how how conservatives think about the malaise of a country that's that's kind of in slow decline. You know, it, Hillary Clinton was a continuation of a lot of policies that they think are, are just not some of which are good, by the way. I mean, some of which are, are really progressive in, in very extremely positive ways, but others that kind of sap America of its strength, of its initiative, of its ability to to defend itself. And, and th this is what conservatives really worry about a lot. And, and that's why when you talk about a threat to the republic, it's a question of what do you mean? I mean, it's okay. I, I think I'll, it is. Well, I'll, I'll, OK, I'll be more specific. Donald Trump, in an interview with German and British press, questioned the need for NATO, questioned the need for the European Union, criticized German Chancellor Angela Merkel. You mean to tell me that it is not a threat not only to a global order that's been in place for at least 70 
or so years, but also a threat to the country to have someone, a leader of the free world, president of the United States, a commander in chief who was saying to our steadfast allies and, you know, in an order that we have supported for the better of the world, that that's not a that that's not a threat, that that's not something that we not just not just progressives and, and Democrats, but the entire country should be worried about. It's uh, I'm going to be keenly interested in what he actually does in terms of policy. If he's talking about things, exploring new territory about whether or not NATO members should pay their fair share when it comes to defending themselves. If, if he says that's not right, that the, the alliance is dysfunctional because of that. And he's saying it in a hyperbolic way, then I regret a lot of the hyperbole. I'm going to see what he does actually in terms of policy. If he tries to unwind NATO, if the world gets more dangerous, <laughs> I'm not going to like it. Um, then I'm going, to, I'm going to say this really is an existential threat to, to our lives as we see it. But, but until he does that, I'm, and, and here's what I urge you and, and, and all of our listeners to do is to give him a chance. Because you know what? We got no choice. Well, well, that's true. And as I said to folks in Marrakesh at the German Marshall Fund's Atlantic Dialogues Conference, um, you just got back from Marrakesh. When they, well, that was that was a little bit ago. Oh, cool. Oh, but, you know, it's a fabulous place. But he, he, here's the thing: someone asked, you know, what can we expect from Donald Trump? And I said, listen. Don't pay so much attention to what he says because you really can't believe what he says from one minute to the other because as we've seen, he'll say the sky is blue and then deny it a minute later, even after you show him the tape. What you have to do is pay attention to what he does. And we will find out we soon won't. enough what he does. We will. And if we um, can, and basically, look, one of the things that I think people forget in a lot of the controversies about whether or not he's a legitimate president, et cetera, is that liberals don't understand the conservatives and conservatives don't understand that liberals we all want the country to succeed. We all want the best for America. We get one president at a time. Uh, you know, when, when President Obama was the president, it was in all of our interest that he succeed because the country succeeds when the president is successful. We all have an interest in seeing that President Trump succeed. And it's going to be better if we if we enter this time with an open mind. It's, it's really hard on a lot of people. I got it. But do give him a chance. Let's let's just see what happens. Let's work to to be as helpful as we possibly can. And that especially is true of liberals who are going to exercise a very important responsibility for dissent about policy that they don't like, but but hoping he screws up and just assuming that everything is going to be completely insane is is probably not the best recipe for success going forward. Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to have to have you come back because it is always great Thank to you, talk Jonathan. to you. Congratulations on your success, and thanks to all the listeners who make uh, good programming possible by listening to the best stuff, and that's Jonathan K. Parts. Cape up. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 